Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that truly we have a hope to look forward to, a hope and an expectation of an eternity with you forever and ever and ever, forevermore with you. And so, Lord, we look forward to the day when we might see you face to face. But in the meantime, I pray that you would continue to work in this time, that through your spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you might have for us to know and to understand, that we might cling to your grace in truth, rooted and grounded in the reality of your great love and affection for your people. And so, God, I pray that as we open your word right now, I ask that you would speak to us, illuminate your scriptures, help us to understand that which is sometimes complicated to understand. pray you would speak to us and move us to action. It's in your son's name. Amen. Good morning again. Happy to be here with y'all. I think this is my first time preaching uh, this year. So, I don't know, commemorative in some way, I suppose. Anybody got that friend uh, that when you're with that friend, just the two of y'all, everything's great. They're, they're fun to be around. You're fun to be with. And then you introduce them uh, out of the protected environment and you introduce them into the wild. That is perhaps another group of people and they become strange or awkward. Like they're trying too hard. Like they've forgotten. Maybe this is just me. Maybe I just had collect people that do this, but, but I, I, sometimes you're around people that when you're one-on-one, you're like, ah, oh, you're a ter- perfectly normal human being. And then you introduce them to like your group of friends. You're like, oh, there's the crazy. Okay. Got it. I'm understanding now. It's almost like they lose a sense of who they are. They, they, they don't feel comfortable who they are. They don't maybe feel like they're going to be accepted by the people that they're around the new people. And so they try to be somebody else. Maybe you've been in a situation like this a short situation where you've had to pretend to be somebody else. Maybe when you met your in-laws for the first time, maybe your prospective in-laws, you're like, I gotta, I gotta pretend like I know what's going on because I really want to marry this person. Or maybe when you brought that baby home from the hospital and you're like, I am now a parent in name. Sure. Not really sure what I'm doing now. Going to have to figure it out as I go. What got me through that was I thought there are people a lot dumber than me that have raised children. That was kind of my mantra throughout the whole experience. (laughs) Seems to be working well. Or maybe you went to a job interview and you're like, I got to pretend to be the person that they want to hire because I really want this job. And so rather than operating out of who you actually are, you operate out of a sense of trying to read the room and pretend like you're what you think other people want you to be. And if you do this regularly, if you do this a lot, one, you can lose a sense of who you're supposed to be. You kind of become this chameleon that just adapts and you don't really know who you are. And other times it can lead to really strong moments of identity crisis because we wrap ourselves up, we wrap our identity up in the titles that we have, the roles that we perform, the people that we are. And when those things get stripped away, when you lose those things that you've attached your identity to, then all of a sudden you go enter into this thing called an identity crisis. I don't know what I am anymore. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've spent the last X number of years being this person and I'm not this person anymore. So what do I do? I want us to talk today about how we can navigate an identity crisis. We're going through a series called Brand New and this week we're talking about having a new identity, having a new identity in Christ. And I want to talk about how we can navigate an identity crisis so that we might come out on the other side and actually walk through this experience as something that is fruitful and gives life. And it doesn't have to be this torturous experience for us. 
Now, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and we've covered some of this ground last week, but we're going to finish out the story of Paul's conversion today. And this passage is not necessarily about an identity crisis. This story is about God taking, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church's worst enemy and making him their greatest ally. That's what this passage is about. It's about the church continuing to advance and expand and grow. However, because it's a narrative, you're actually able to dig in and ask questions and think, hey, what do you think Paul was going through in the midst of this? And I can't help but think from my own personal experience that if I went through something like what Paul went through, I would be having a bit of an identity crisis. So how do we navigate this? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to admit that we have a mistaken identity. Now, if you don't know Saul or Paul's story, I'll use those probably interchangeably today. If you don't know Saul's story, you know, or or you might want to know that he was persecuting the church. He was an incredibly religious man, zealous Jewish man of one of the strictest orders of Jewish men at the time. And he was out to persecute the church because they were heretics. They said that, that Jesus was the son of God, that he was the Messiah. That's not okay. They need to be gotten rid of. And so he was on a mission to do this to Damascus and God appears to him, the, the son of God, Jesus Christ appears to him on the Damascus road and says, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul winds up in Damascus and, he, and, he, and he's spending time praying and fasting And I think spending a lot of time being like, who in the world am I? Who am I supposed to be? Now, there's one person in the story that knows exactly who Saul is, and we meet him in verse 10 of chapter 9. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying." And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. God wants Ananias to go to Saul and help him get his identity sorted out. I want you to go and tell him who he is. I want you to go and lay your hands on him. Now, to lay hands on somebody was an act of approval. It's an act of commission. It's an act of association. We touch people we're close to. Family members, friends. If you go up and put hands on a stranger, that's weird. It's an act of commission. We still do this today. We're going to have a deacon ordination, and we're going to ordain a minister. And when we do that, we put our hands on them. And we're saying we approve of them. We commission them into ministry. We still do this. And Ananias says, Lord, tap the brakes. I don't think this man is here for me to come and lay hands on him. I think he wants to lay hands on me and not in an approving way. He wants to put me in chains and drag me all the way back to Jerusalem, me and my friends, so that he can kill me. I don't, I don't think, and this happens all throughout the rest of the chapter. There's this case of mistaken identity with Saul. People keep asking, isn't this the guy who used to like kill Christians? What's he doing? What's he doing? I mean, imagine being Saul. Imagine being fully convinced that you were right, that you were fighting for the Lord, that you were on the side of truth and justice. 
And then you have a vision that's very clearly the Lord Jesus. In fact, in another passage, in another telling of the story, he actually physically, it's not just a bright light that he sees, he actually talks face to face with Jesus. And imagine finding out all this time you thought you were on God's side, you were actually working against him and hurting him. How shattering that must have been. Ananias, again, fully convinced that Saul is not, Saul's playing a trick. He's going undercover, right? I don't trust this guy for a minute. But there's one person in the story who knows exactly who Saul is, and it's God, because he's the only one not confused. Look what God says in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So in a couple verses, God corrects Ananias's mistake about who Saul is, and he wants Ananias then to go and proclaim that, make that known to Saul so that Saul's identity crisis is over. Remember, Ananias pointed out that Saul was on the authority of the chief priests, and God says, no, 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 he's not on their authority enemy. He, he works for me. He works for me now. He's got a higher authority in his life. Ananias said that he was there to bring the saints in chains before those in authority. And God says, he's not going to bring saints in chains before authorities anymore. He's going to bring my name before authorities now. And Ananias said, he's there to inflict pain on people, suffering. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. He's going to suffer for my name, not inflict pain on others because of it. You see again and again and again, the word name appears. It's all throughout this passage. The name of God, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. All who call on the name of Jesus. Saul is identifying now. He's supposed to identify. That's why I don't think it matters whether we call him Saul or Paul because I don't think Saul or Paul really cared. I think he cared about one name, the name of Jesus Christ. That's the name that he called upon. He wasn't making that mistake anymore. And you see, that's the thing about identity crises. They usually come out of some mistake. Because we do. We derive part of our identity from who we are and what we do. And when that gets stripped away, we become confused. We think of ourselves as a parent or a child, a sibling, an employee, an employer. You think of yourself in your profession. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a student or a life stage. I'm a teenager. I'm a college student. I'm a young adult. I'm a single adult. I'm a senior adult. And at some point in your life, that identity will be pulled away. Through some transition or some circumstance in your life, that identity will be pulled away. Now, it may be like Saul's identity crisis, where you find out everything that you were doing is wrong. You're completely mistaken about your identity. And this usually happens at conversion. This usually happens when you first meet Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you first realize there's nothing that I can do to come to know the Lord, there's nothing I can do to get God's approval of my life, I need someone to do it for me. And you realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just like Saul did. He is the Son of God. And he died on the cross for my sins, and you put your faith and trust in him, and then you realize that you're finding your identity in Christ, and it's a process. It may also happen to you after you've been a Christian for some years, you may, for some years you may find out that not everything about your life is wrong, your identity is wrong, but you find out that the basket where you were putting all of your eggs of identity, well, that basket was never meant to hold that many eggs. Maybe you spend too much time at work chasing a promotion, chasing a raise, chasing a career, and then you wake up one day and you realize, where did my kids go? 
Where's my family? What happened? Or maybe you think, I gave everything to my family, and then the last kid leaves the nest and goes off to school, and you're like, I'm a mom or I'm a dad, and now they're not here to parent. What do I do now? Or maybe you thought you'd be married and have kids by now, and that's not your identity. Or maybe you value your independence, and your kids are sitting across the kitchen table from you saying, Mom, Dad, we're a little worried about you on the roads. We want your keys. Or Mom, Dad, I don't think you should live by yourself anymore. We're worried about you. And you value your independence. You're independent. That's your identity. That's who you are. Or maybe you failed somebody. You let somebody down. And you thought you were the person that always comes through and you blew it in a big way. Or maybe you're like Ananias and your case of mistaken identity isn't about you, it's about other people, groups of people. And you've been wrong about them. Look, we all get it wrong at some point. All of us have a case of mistaken identity at some point. And I would love to tell you like a step-by-step process of navigating that and maybe that's what the rest of our time together will be. But the very first thing that all of us need to agree to do is be incredibly humble about the fact that we might be wrong. That the very things, just like Saul, that I'm so convinced of, I could be wrong about that. If it doesn't involve the Lord and what scripture teaches us, you could be wrong about something. Maybe putting all your eggs in that basket that's not supposed to hold that many eggs. You could have a wrong case of identity. We need to be humble and go before the Lord and say, Lord, I feel like I'm right. I feel like I'm okay. I feel like I'm deriving my identity from who you say I am rather than the things that I do and the roles in my life. But I also am completely spiritually blind sometimes and I could be wrong. Lord Jesus, please open my eyes. And then when he does, don't fight it. Confess, repent, confess, repent. But we need to be humble. Now, like most things in the Christian life, this isn't just a momentary window. Identity crises don't typically just happen one day and then go the next. They tend to be long windows of time. They can be long windows of time. And I think this happens in Saul's case. So we need to endure the identity crisis. We need to endure the identity crisis. Now, we know that he's been praying and fasting for about three days. And we know that that's kind of been his focus of trying to get through this thing. Uh, But we know that Saul's identity crisis Part of that, I think, has to be a lack of community. Got to be, right? I mean, think about it. On one side, he had this vision, and the group of people that he was so uh, uh, immersed in, the Pharisees, he can't go back there again. He can't be a part of that group again. He's seen too much. He knows too much now. He'd be living a lie. But the group that he would now fit naturally in, the church, he spent the last year persecuting them. They're not going to want him either. Where am I supposed to go? And then amazingly enough, somebody walks up to him and calls him something. Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Ananias lays hands on him, which is, which is great. That's exactly what he's supposed to do, but that's probably not the only thing that Ananias does. Ananias is probably the one who baptizes him, which is public, by the way. 
Ananias is also probably the one that prepares him food. Ananias is probably the one who disciples him. And this must have been really amazing for Saul because look what happens next. The rest of verse 19 and into 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who, upon those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul immediately sets to work. I think some of us, when we, most of us actually, when we have an identity crisis, we tend to think linearly, right? So I've had this crisis, I'm all messed up, I don't know who I am anymore, I've got to wait to get myself straightened out, and then I can go and work for the Lord. Then I can start serving other people, then I can start doing other things. We wait till things are fine, we wait till we have things under control. And then once we kind of get settled, we're like, well now if I'm going to talk about who God is, if I'm going to step into this new role that I think God has for me, I need to get training, right? So I got to take like a course on evangelism. I got to take a course on apologetics because if somebody asks me a question and I don't know the answer, I got to sign up for like six Bible studies, three of which I will actually attend regularly. And we just front load this process so much. We think of it linearly. When God does something, and that's really what I think an identity crisis is. It's an opportunity for God to really do something in a really fertile and tender time in your life. He's trying to show you something new about who he wants you to be. And we think linearly. We get ourselves worked out and then we try to move forward. But God wants to take this time and he wants to use it to catapult you into service and into ministry. And it is something new. Using perhaps loss, using perhaps difficulty in that time. In verse 19, notice it says, in verse 19, he says that for some days he was with the disciples. In verse 23, it says, when many days had passed. If you go over to Galatians 1.13, you don't have to turn there now, but if you turn over to Galatians 1.13 in your own reading, you'll see that Paul spends about three years in a place called Arabia. Now, Arabia was a region uh, that was kind of outside of the Roman Empire, and it kind of butted up against Damascus. So what I think happens is Paul's actually in Damascus, Arabia for about three years, And my image of this has always been like, oh, he's out there communing with the Lord. He's getting taught by the Lord. He's receiving instruction by the Lord. And I think that's happening. But I also think Saul's out there sharing the gospel. I think Saul's out there on mission. I think Saul is out there taking what he's learning and going forward and preaching the gospel. And we know that this apparently causes a problem because in 2 Corinthians 11.32, the governor tries to kill him. Because he's causing such a problem. Going out there into Arabia, into the Arabian desert, and just meditating for three years, I don't know of anybody that's going to try and kill you for that. The heat might. Saul's causing problems. Paul's figuring things out. He's reorienting himself to this person that God has for him to be. He understands that he is now fully loved by God. He's fully accepted by God. And I think this is why in Galatians he writes about circumcision not meaning anything anymore. Imagine a Pharisee. What would it take for a Pharisee who thought circumcision was everything to now say, eh, not that big of a deal. In fact, it's kind of a barrier to grace. Let's just get rid of it. Right? He's got to find a new identity. He's got to find more who he is. He knows that there's life in Jesus Christ. He knows that there's bigger things. There's more important things. That's why he writes in Ephesians 6. 
about the spiritual warfare going on and how we have hope and a faith in Jesus Christ that we're going to make it, that we're going to win, that we're going to have victory because of a new identity in Christ. He's no longer worried about Roman oppression of his homeland like he would have been as a Pharisee because his eyes are cast upward to where Jesus Christ is and knows that Jesus Christ is going to fulfill all promises and all prophecies. Saul has a new identity and it's changing everything. It's vaulted him into a different kind of ministry. Rather than going after people and hurting them, he's bringing them before the Lord. And whether you're, when you're enduring an, an identity crisis, a lot of us, like I said, we want to take our ship and we want to put it in dry dock and work on it from the safety of the shore. That is not an option. You have got to stay in the boat while it is still on the raging sea. And yeah, you've got to take some boards off. And yeah, you've got to evaluate, is this thing seaworthy? It's not. Chuck it into the water. Let's put a different board on. But when you are out in the sea, you don't have the luxury of stripping the boat down to nothing so you can rebuild it from scratch. You've got to make sure it stays afloat. Dry dock is not an option for us. But we use the seasons of discomfort, the seasons of identity crisis, to vault us into service and into ministry. We endure the waves of the identity crisis by trusting in the Lord and in the Holy Spirit who navigates us for us. So how do we do that? How do we endure the identity crisis? Well, first you need a community. <clears throat> you need people around you. Saul had Ananias. He had at least one guy in his life who was like, dude, you're not crazy. Literally just had a vision too. Like, you're good. Talked to him, built him up, encouraged him, discipled him, baptism, claimed him publicly as like a friend. You need somebody that's going to sit beside you and love you unconditionally, regardless of what's going on in your life. You need that to endure the identity crisis. It's a new year. If you're not a part of a group here at Park Cities, you need to be in a group. And if you're not going to be the Saul in the group who needs people to come around you, maybe you can be an Ananias. Stop depriving people of your mentorship and your fellowship because you don't have time or you don't want to wake up or whatever the reason is. We need Ananiases and we need Sauls. You also need to continue to serve the Lord. Again, dry dock's not an option. There are safe harbors where you can park your boat for a little bit, but get back out there. Get back out there. If, you, if you're going through a time in your life where you don't really want to be vocal, you don't want to be in a public place, I understand that, then serve somewhere behind the scenes. Maybe, maybe go hold a baby in the nursery. Because you know what that teaches me? That God loves me unconditionally. Because these babies aren't doing anything and people fight to hold them. They're kind of messy. But people want to be around them. Why? Because they're beloved. And they haven't done anything. You need to learn that, perhaps, in your identity crisis. Maybe go to a place where you're just all that's required is to smile. You need to welcome and to greet. Or maybe just pray. Be generous. What I'd say is you need to focus on people who are maybe in a crisis as well, something different from your own. And you can get your eyes off of your own situation. And maybe realize that maybe your situation isn't as bad as other people's. Now, it would be nice if when walking through an identity crisis, all I had to worry about was what was going on in me, like I could go into a vacuum and not really deal with anything else. But the truth of the matter is there are external factors that influence the course of the identity crisis. So we need to watch out for identity theft. We need to watch out for identity theft. Verse 23, when many days had passed, 
The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul gets wind of what's happening, he leaves the city of Damascus, and he goes to Jerusalem. Now you would think, going to Jerusalem, he's been doing this for three years. So he heads to Jerusalem for the first time, and you'd think like the church there would be like, hey buddy, how's it going? Not so much. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Notice he attempts to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists and they were seeking to kill him. And then the brothers learned this. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is where he grew up. Saul shows up and he's like, hey, I want to be a part of your church. And the church in Jerusalem, which was hit the hardest by Saul's persecution, is like, mm, no, we're good, buddy. Saul probably persecuted the church anywhere from six months to a year before his Damascus Road conversion experience. Then he spent the last three years doing things that people heard about. Like, that wasn't a secret. He was an evangelist and he was building up the church. Three years versus about one year. And what is everybody fixated on? Still the guy he was four years ago when he was murdering people in the church. Again, not something you get over quickly, but they're fixated on it. That's who you are, that's your identity. And finally, the groups of people that used to be his allies, like the Hellenists. The Hellenists, by the way, were kind of Greek, Greek Jews that were probably the ones responsible for the killing of Stephen. And if you know your, your story of Acts, Saul is present at the stoning of Stephen. He holds their coats while they do it. He's approving of it. So even his former allies, he's going and and, and attacking them. He's he's arguing against them, saying, no, 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 you're wrong. I was wrong when I was associating with you. And so his former allies, they're like, we want to get rid of you. If you're not ever going to come back to our side of things, we're going to kill you just like you would have killed somebody in your spot. They try to steal his identity. How? By getting rid of him. And the church isn't much better. They try to steal his identity by, by disassociating from him. You can have and find your identity in Christ on your own, but you cannot enjoy the full fruit of being in Christ Jesus on your own. Christianity is a communal faith. It is not designed to be lived out on your own. There are individual elements? Absolutely. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But in the United States, because we value individuality so much, we've run that to the nth degree and thought that you can have like, Cowboy Jesus, where you just ride off into the sunset, you and Jesus. Like Butch Cassidy and Sundance. That's not how it works. You need other believers. They're trying to remove his identity. And who steps in? God sends somebody else, Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement, who's like, no, 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 this guy, I think he's legit. And again, think about the weight that Barnabas has in the early church. He goes to the apostles, like Peter and John. He's like, hey, guys. Trust me on this one. And they're like, all right, Barnabas, we'll listen to you. Who I think they called him Barney, by the way. That's just my guess. <laughs> but this happens throughout the story of God's work in people's life. Whenever he does something new, there's always somebody who tries to reorient back to the old identity. 
There's always somebody that tries to be like, mm, no, I don't know about that. When Abraham is told that he's going to be a father and that Sarah's going to be a mom, Sarah's like, that's not my identity. Mom is not my identity. My identity is infertile old woman. And I laugh at the fact that you would think you can take that away from me, God. Moses, when he's told he's going to lead the exodus out of Egypt, he's like, no, 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 that's not who I am. I'm a murderer. I tried that once. I killed somebody. It wasn't good. And I, and, and, and I kind of have a, a speech problem. I have an issue talking, God. I don't want to do that. It's not who I am. Peter tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, I know you said that you've got to die for, no, no, no. Like, let's, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to know. And then Jesus tells him what? Get behind me, Satan. When God does something new in your life, when he's leading you into change, or you've lost something that you found your identity in, people around you will try and talk you out of it. Try and talk you out of what God is doing in your life. Some of it's gonna be well-intentioned. They're gonna try and comfort you and say, hey, let's not make any rash decisions. This is just a, a sensitive time for you. Let's be patient. And it's supposed to be comforting, but it might be distracting. They might point out all the good things that happened in the way of life that you're leaving behind. They might say, but hey, didn't, what, didn't we have some good time? Wasn't this a good way of doing things? Weren't people cared for and ministered to? You did really good things in this role. Why are you trying to leave it? Or they may point out that this is the way things have always been. And that tradition, finding our identity in tradition, is really the best way to go. They may tell you that it's not practical. Practicality is a great argument. I fall into that trap often. I hear this a lot with like college students that maybe want to spend time and go on a mission trip before they go to college or take some time off to go on a mission trip. Parents, grandparents, people say, no, that's not the script. That's not practical. You need a job so you can get money. It's not practical. And sometimes it's not going to be well-intentioned. Sometimes you're going to try to leave behind a life of sin and your, your friends that were with you are going to say, dude, don't leave this. You're going to miss out. It's going to be so good. You're going to miss out. Don't, don't go that way. Don't go that way. They remind you of how much you're missing out. They may criticize you. They may ridicule you, ostracize you, minimize you. They may do those very th same things to the work of God in your life. So he's not really that worth giving up all this pleasure for. Attempts to steal your identity are often efforts to get you to find the core of who you are in something other than Jesus Christ. Things like your career, your comfort, your tradition, your practicality, escape, enjoyment, pleasure, success. All of those can be places where we find our identity. And some of those things are very good things. In fact, I'd probably argue most of them are. But what's really rough is that we are kind of tempted to have our identity stolen. We kind of want to give it away, right? Because it sounds so nice. I want to go and be comfortable. I want to go someplace where it's natural for me, where I fit in. Even if it's not what God has for me, I just want to, I want to be accepted, right? And the great thing about God is he puts in us when we come to know him, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the great thing about the Holy Spirit is he may let you walk that path for a little while. He may let you turn around and go back the way you were going, but he won't let you stay there. The Bible talks about this a couple of times. Jeremiah, who was probably the least successful prophet in history, like nobody repented, nobody confessed. And he finally gets tired of it. He's like, God, I'm sick of this. I want to quit. And then in, 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 in I think, chapter 9, he says, but if I shut up about what you've told me, it will be like a fire in my bones. I can't do it. 
Saul, who becomes Paul, says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, if I don't do what you've called me to do. We have to be ever vigilant that there will be people who maybe are questioning the work of God in my life. And with those people, we have to say, we have to ask some questions. Are they believers or are they not believers? And if they are believers, are they pursuing the Lord or are they just kind of in a lull too? What do they have to lose by me pursuing Christ in this way in my life? What do they have to gain by me pursuing Christ or by me not pursuing Christ? Ask questions of them and don't just ignore them. Don't just write them off if you find out that they, yeah, they're a little nervous about losing something. Talk to them about it. Engage with them about it. Navigate that thing. Here's what I'll say. When God does something new in your life, there should be people in the church that affirm that decision. Doesn't have to be everybody. Doesn't even have to be a majority. But there should be at least somebody that says yes. Like that, I, I can see you doing that. I can see God doing that new thing in your life and you should pursue it. If you're out there on your own in an identity crisis, that's a real dangerous place to be. Because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. So I've, I've talked negatively a little bit. You have a mistaken identity and you need to admit it. You need to endure the identity crisis. You, know, you need to, you need to uh, uh, be on the watch out for identity theft. What about some positive things? Well, we need to embrace our new identity. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 is kind of like an epitaph on the whole scenario that happened with Saul. And then as Acts move forward, you actually leave Saul Paul behind for a while and then you pick him back up and you finish out the book with him. Verse 31 says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now again, I know that, that this is a corporate description. The whole church is doing this. But I think as people found their identity in Christ, as they reoriented and made Jesus Christ the most important person and thing in their life, these things happen for them. It kind of gives us a map for how we embrace our identity in Christ. The first thing is we need to seek peace and growth. Seek peace and growth, as that's what the church does in verse 31. It says it had peace and was being built up. Times of crisis seem to be the opposite of peace, right? Seems to be the opposite of that time in your life. But we call out to the Lord and we ask him for peace. We ask him for, for uh, sure, uh, sure places to put our footsteps. What's the next thing you need me to do, Lord? And give me peace and confidence in that. I may not have confidence in anything else. But give me confidence in where you want me to go next. Have confidence that, and peace that he's working in your life. And then know that you're growing in maturity. Don't waste your identity crisis. There shouldn't be that many of them. Don't waste it. Use it. Know that it's an opportunity for growth and maturity. Bathe it in prayer. Be grateful and content in the midst of it. Give God gratitude for all that he has given you and all the ways that he's blessing you. And then find contentment in the fact that he's working and say, Lord, I'm not happy with where I'm at. I'm confused, but I also know that you're good and I'm going to rest in that. It also says to walk in fear, verse 31, uh, and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord is like a respect of the Lord. It's, it's, it's like this acknowledgement that God is powerful and he can do what he wants in line with his character. And sometimes that seems confusing and scary to us. So there's this fear. They just saw the greatest enemy of the church become its greatest ally. Everybody's like, God can do anything because that man was never coming to Christianity, but he did. We need to recognize that when we're in identity crisis, God may want to do something new, something amazing, something incredible in our lives. And we need to be aware of that and be open to it. We also need to seek comfort from the Holy Spirit. It's okay to say, God, I'm scared. 
God, I'm worried about this time in my life. I'm worried about the season. I need you to come in and help me. Lastly, we need to tell other people, don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it to yourself. Your identity crisis, when you're walking through that season, should be a time where you're proclaiming, you're sharing with other people what God is doing. Use it as a platform to talk about what great things Jesus is doing in your life. An identity crisis is a difficult thing to go through, um, but I believe God has something for you in the midst of it, a new identity that he wants to give you to help you realize that in Christ. So don't waste that opportunity. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much. Uh, for the new identity that we get in you, that we have in you. I pray that you would uh, just continue to open our eyes to the areas of our life where we have found uh, surety and security that's not you. And some of those things might be idols. Some of those things might be things that we cling to. God, I pray that we would let them go and that we would cling to you instead. We love you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.